So the title of today's message is Roses Are Red. Now, one thing that I've been sharing with a few people that I kind of wanted to share with you is two weeks ago when I was, when I was working on this message, I was at, I had the, you know, the opening and I had kind of the ending, but I didn't have anything in the middle. I did not know where this message was going to go. And so I texted the elders and I texted Sean and Paul and Nathan and I said, hey guys, you know, just pray for me. Just, I don't know what to do. I haven't written anything in a while and I just don't know what direction I want to go with this. So within about five minutes though, I had a clear, concise direction from the Lord and it was pretty awesome, and I, I just wanted to share that story with you because I was kind of blown away with just how quickly God was able to just like, all right, here's what I want you to do, here's what I want you to say, and then the sermon pretty much just wrote itself. So the title of today's is Roses Are Red. You've probably heard the poem, the roses are red, the violets are blue, the honey is sweet, and so are you, or at least some kind of iteration on it. So what thoughts come to your mind when you see a rose? Sweet smell. What else? Flowers. Okay. Beauty. Love. Love. All right. Thank you. This is the part where you, you interact with me. Um, maybe it's a man walking through the grocery store with a dozen roses and some chocolate, and the first thought you think is, <laughs> somebody's in trouble. That's what I think of whenever I'm walking through the store. Or maybe you think they're pretty. Maybe you even think about God and all of his beauty when you see one. Well, today we're going to look, we're going to start by looking at a very specific rose in the Bible. We're going to look at the Rose of Sharon. So first, here are a bunch of things you may not know about the Rose of Sharon. Um, I pulled these up offline. So the Rose of Sharon, it is native to China, the national flower of South Korea. It produces large, showy flowers. It blooms when many other flowers are done blooming. It is classified as low maintenance, tolerant of a variety of types of soil. Basically, it grows in very difficult places. Hence the next one. It likes hot weather. It can be both a specimen, an individual plant, so it can grow on its own, or it can grow in a group of a bunch of different um, plants called a hedge. They can usually grow to about 10 to 12 feet. The flowers are usually three to six inches in diameter and they transplant easily. So, did you catch all of the similarities to Jesus in that? No? Awesome, I still have a sermon to preach. Sweet. All right, so the Bible mentions this specific flower. So turn with me to Song of Solomon 2, verse 1. one, All right. So Song of Solomon 2.1, it says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Now, there are many different interpretations of this verse. There's a little bit of controversy about what this verse is actually speaking to. But there's a camp of people that believe that the rose of Sharon mentioned here is a representation of Christ. So I want to read that again with that in mind. So when I'm reading this, just think about Jesus as being the Rose of Sharon. So, I am the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valleys. So what does it mean to be a Lily of the Valley? 
Well, I had no idea what the lily of the valley was, so I looked it up. The lily of the valley is actually a whole nother row, a whole nother flower. It's not a lily in the valley. It's actually called the lily of the valley, just like the rose of Sharon. So I didn't know that. I thought that was super interesting when I looked it up. Um, there's a whole nother study that can be done on the lily, but today I'm going to focus on the rose of Sharon. So in my studying, the Bible does not specifically compare Jesus to the rose of Sharon anywhere. It does not say Jesus is the rose of Sharon. You kind of have to put some pieces together in order to, to come to that conclusion. But it does make general references to that point. So let's look, for example, in Isaiah chapter 35. So Isaiah 35, verse 1 and 2. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord the excellency of our God. So here we see a typology or another picture of Jesus. Basically through the blossoming of this rose, the Israelites will see the glory of our Lord and the excellency of our God. To get a better idea of what this is referencing, let's turn back a chapter and read the verses right before it. This is one of those occasions where the chapter and verse breakdown that we find in the Bible uh, can kind of deter from the meaning. So um, Isaiah was meant to be read as just one solid letter. We break it up for English to be a little bit easier to read and stuff like that. But in this one, I want to just read the end of the last chapter, and then we'll just move right into the, into the start of this chapter. So we're going to go to Isaiah 34, and we're going to start on verse 16. So it says, Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate. For my mouth has commanded it, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever, from generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. And then it continues on. So... At this point in Isaiah, it's talking about the judgment of the, of the Israelites um, because they had turned their back on God. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase what we just read in Isaiah. Basically it says, read the Bible. Then God commanded and through his spirit, the animals will retake the land. None of the animals will be missing and they will not have to search for their mate because everyone will be there. As we keep reading in Isaiah 35, the desert is glad for them. And them here is the referencing of the animals beforehand. Sounds kind of depressing for the children of Israel, doesn't it? They're going to be completely wiped out. They're not going to have their land. The animals are going to take over their land again. Well, this was all happening because the children of Israel had turned their back on God. 
the first 39 chapters of Israel are all about God's vengeance. They're all about his anger, uh, his righteous anger at the fact that the children had disobeyed and had not been keeping the law. Sin will do that in the life. When we turn our back on God, his righteous judgment has to fall because he is perfect and can accept nothing less. Otherwise, he would not be perfect and just. So if he didn't you know, hold us accountable for the wrongdoings that we had, he would not be a just God and the entire system would, would crumble. So God demands perfection from us just as he did the children of Israel. But even throughout the most depressing parts of Scripture, there is always hope. There's always glimmers of hope. So even when we think God has turned his back on us, we get a verse like Isaiah 35, verse 2. And it says, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. And to me, that's a comforting thought. So the Bible is using this picture of a rose blossoming abundantly. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. So when I started this message, I asked you what came to mind when you thought of a rose. You all had very valid answers, very interesting answers, but I want you to maybe consider some of these points when you see a rose next. So I've got a little disclaimer on this part of this section, all right? So I realize pretty much anything can be made into an analogy if you stretch it far enough. So this is just meant to be something to think about the next time you see a rose. That's my disclaimer on that. But with that being said, I'm about to give you seven bullet points to consider, and we will see how these can be applied to our lives. Each one of these could be a lesson on its own, so I'm going to give you an overview on the symbolism of each. So, when you buy a rose, typically, not always, but typically, you buy a rose in a dozen. And so, when I think of that, I think of the 12 disciples. Jesus had 12 disciples. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. Just in case you wondered, did Jesus really have 12 disciples? I'm going to break it down right here. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. When it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 whom he named the apostles. So Jesus was very intentional about the company that he kept. These 12 were his close inner circle. The Bible says, but the Bible says that he loves and included all. So Matthew 9, 10 to 13. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, says, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in his house, that behold, 
many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher sit with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus did not look down on anyone for their past mistakes or current issues. He specifically went out of his way to find the people that needed him. The people that needed the great physician are the ones that he went after. Now, he didn't say what they were doing was okay. He wasn't saying, well, we just need to include everyone and blindly turn an eye to their sin. He didn't say any of that. He said we needed to help them. But he also didn't say, if you're a sinner, we're going to turn you away at the door and I'm not even going to talk to you until you come to me in perfection. That's not what Jesus said. And he could have said that because he was perfect, but he didn't. He was willing to be with them. He knew that the only way he was going to be able to reach these people was through one-on-one witnessing. Now, Jesus preached many sermons. They're all recorded in the, in the Bible, and each one is better than the last. So I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with getting saved from a sermon. But Jesus pictures for us another way to reach people, and that's shepherding them. That's the one-on-one relationship, getting to know people, getting to know what's going on in their life. It's an incredibly powerful way for us to be able to witness to people a.k.a. coming alongside of them. Getting to know people and what's going on in their life. Something tells me that Jesus didn't just sit down at dinner and say, how are you? I'm good. Yep, I'm good. Okay, how are you? And then just move on. That's not what Jesus was doing at that table. Jesus interacted with these people and loved on them and poured into them every chance he got. Jesus Jesus rested because he was so tired from all of the spiritual work that he was doing. He was constantly pouring into people on a regular basis. When was the last time, I have have a call for you, when was the last time you did that? Maybe you sent a text in the middle of the week asking how someone's doing. God puts people's hearts and names on your mind for a reason, or puts their face, even if you don't know their name, puts their face in your mind so you can just be like, Lord, I'm just going to take a second right now, I'm just going to pray for that person, or I'm going to send them a text, or I'm going to send them a verse, or something like that. Or follow up on a commitment on Sunday. You, you have this time of greeting. We show up early. We hang out. We talk. We get to know people. Maybe you find out that they're going to have a surgery, or they've got something going on in their work. Are you following up with them the next Sunday? Are you getting into their lives and getting to know how these people are doing and, and just establishing a relationship with them? Jesus cares for and loves people so much It brings me to my next point of a rose. So when you're picturing a rose, picture the red of the flower. The red of the flower could be a representation of Christ's blood. Christ's blood is how much he loved us. And we'll kind of go into why that is. So there are 39 verses about Christ's blood in the New Testament. Let's look at every single one of them right now. All right. But let's look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 7. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So here it speaks to Christ's blood being the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? Grace. His grace. <laughs> How do we get access to that grace? Yes! F and H! Oh, I love this church. That's right. The way we get access to this grace is with faith and humility. We talk about it all the time because it is so incredibly important that we understand that that is what Jesus wants from us. That is all he demands from us is faith and humility. Faith to know that he's going to do it and humility to let him do it. The grace that his blood allows, this grace that his blood allows access to, we know is not just a one-time saving grace. It is not just a, here's how you enter into the kingdom, now you're completely on your own, have fun, try hard, let me know how it works out for you. That's not what his grace does. His grace is a daily walk. His blood is a representation of that grace. And I love that. It's taken me forever to figure that concept out. But when I got it, it was just, it was fantastic. It is a most comforting thought for me to know the same grace that miraculously brought me out of sin and the eternal arms of Christ is the same grace that he gives to me on a daily basis so that I am able to live the life that he expects. The blood says, the Bible says, his blood fulfilled the old covenant. His blood justifies my sin in the eyes of God. Christ's blood justifies my sin in the eyes of God. When God looks at us, meaning believers, people that have accepted him and, and have received Christ's blood, he does not see wretched, horrible sinners. He looks down, he sees his son's blood covering us, and we look the white as snow, the Bible says. So God doesn't see how terrible of a person we are if we are covered with Christ's blood, and that's fantastic. So, what did Christ endure in order to shed that blood. Well, let's turn to Isaiah 50. So, Isaiah 50, verse 6, says... I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This is an Old Testament prophecy about Christ and what he would endure for us. It says they pulled out his beard. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty stinking awful. Side note, I know literally how much that pain is because I actually, for whatever stupid reason, decided to go get my beard waxed. So they literally plucked out my beard like six months ago and it hurt like the dickens. So I can attest to the pain and I'm telling you right now that the pain is insane when you're thinking about it. All right, that's it. So... 
So let's look a little more into what he endured for us. So he had his beard plucked out. He was beaten on the back. He was all kinds of things. So let's turn with me to Matthew 27, 29. So Matthew 27, 29 says, When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! So here we see the soldiers mocking him as they shoved a crown onto his head, slicing his flesh as they pushed it down. They had flogged him, and they had beaten him before this. Thank you. This was just, and then to add insult to injury, to literal injury, they called him the king of the Jews, mockingly. They did not realize the meaning and power behind these words. Jesus was not only the king of the Jews, but he is the king of the world. So the next time you grab a rose and are pricked by the thorn of the stem, maybe take a second and think about if you had multiple of these pressing into your skull to the point where blood is pouring down your head while dragging your own death sentence across the city. And typically, I believe it was a bunch of people were lining up on either side while these people carried their cross. Most of the people that carried their cross were, you know, they, they were going to go and, and do their execution, but they weren't beaten. They weren't bloody. They weren't tired. They hadn't been up all night in court and stuff like that. So Jesus was just blood pouring down his head, dragging his cross to the hill. Why? Because that is how much he loves you. He endured all of that just so he could go and die on that cross. So your sins could be forgiven. Not so you could put on a good face in church and then flesh out at home. That's not why Christ died. That's not what he wants. Our heavenly king was not just mocked on or spit on. Not only did he have a crown of thorns wedged onto his temple, but he endured all that knowing he was going to the cross to allow his father, God, to pour out all... Let me start again, sorry. He endured all of that pain, all of that suffering, knowing he was going to the cross to allow his father, God, to pour out all of his, God's, anger onto him, Jesus for our collective sins. Every sin in existence was put onto Jesus in that moment, in that time. Christ endured it all. The word for that is propitiation. Sean has mentioned it before, but it is the pouring out of an eternal God's wrath onto Jesus over and over and over again until God had nothing left. God was able to put all of his anger onto Jesus for all of our sins. And all we have to do to have access to that is to remember what God's shed blood did for us on the cross. In fact, he didn't just endure pain on crucifixion day. He had all sorts of troubles in his life, Jesus did. The next symbolism for the Rose of Sharon we learned in the facts I brought up earlier is that it grows in very difficult circumstances, very difficult soil. So for those of you keeping track, I'm on point number four of seven. 
Christ was in the worst soil possible. So turn with me to John 10. John 10, we're going to be in verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So that was eight verses that I just read. In eight verses, Jesus was threatened to be killed twice. In eight verses. Then again it happens in Luke 4. So turn with me to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 29. I'm going to start on 28. So, all those in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So, they tried to throw Jesus off of a cliff. And I love the picture of this. There's a huge crowd gathering. They're, they're surrounding him. He's at the top of a cliff. There's nowhere he can go. They're closing in on him. They're mad as can be because of what he's been saying. And all he does is walk past them. He just walks right through them. And you can just kind of picture them parting and he's just like you're not going to do anything to me it's not my time i know when my time has come and it's not going to be at the hands of you people so he just casually walks through them no matter what was going on jesus knew what the lord had for him so let's let serve as a reminder we are called in matthew 28:19 we're not going to turn there you can if you want to but we are called in matthew 28:19 to go therefore make disciples of all nations it's called the great commission we have a very specific call that we are supposed to do. This will not be an easy task. We can see these things coming to fruition in our very own country right now. The tendency towards despising the Bible's teaching is becoming more and more prevalent and even more accepted. So do not turn a blind eye to this. Do not you know, think that this isn't going to happen. This, this is a prophecy in the Revelation that we will be persecuted, and it is going to happen. And you can kind of look in this world and see how that is a possibility. The soil for us to grow will only get worse before it gets better. But we can be like the rose. 
we can be like Jesus. By being fed from the word on a daily basis and relying on his grace in a day-by-day situation. So the other things I mentioned, Christ's blood, um, good friends, good believing friends, things like that are all things that will help us to endure the hard times that are coming. So next, a rose blossoms when others don't. Christ was different. Christ was set apart. We are called to be set apart and different. We can see that in John 17. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the word world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And to me, that was a fantastic reminder. People need to see that God has done a transforming work in our life. We cannot say we are Christian, go to church, and then the second we walk out those doors, revert to our old selves. That's not the picture that Jesus has for us. It does not work like that. God requires our full heart on a daily basis so we can be transformed into his image through grace, through faith, through humility, through all the things we mentioned before. So our coworkers or friends or family can see us and say, there's something different about John today. There's something different about him. Yesterday, he was doing all these things. Today, he's not. He's, he's been changed. He's been transformed. They aren't the same person that they once were. And maybe even they'll say, I like this change. I like this person that they've become. It may prompt them to ask why we're different. What is making the change happen? And this goes back to that relationship too. In order to have that comfortability with people, you have to have that one-on-one relationship, that one-on-one understanding with them for them to see what's changing in your life, for them to understand what's going on with you and want to ask you about why you're different. So when they ask you about why you're different, This is your opportunity to do what we've been talking about all day and share the good word. Share how they can get access to the grace. All they have to do to have access to Jesus' blood to cover their sins is to believe in that blood and to believe the message of the cross. So, number six, we're almost done. Thanks for hanging in there with me, guys. Roses transplant easily. Likewise, the message goes everywhere. Much like the representation of Jesus in the previous number, the word of God crosses all generations, every culture, every background, everything. It can be the word of God is able to to speak to somebody in Africa just as well as able to speak to somebody in America. That is a transforming and amazing power of the word of God. It applies to all people. No one is exempt from the original sin of Adam and Eve. So we need, so the Bible needs to be able to go to all different people. God made his word able to stand the test of time. And he gave much smarter people than me the ability 
to translate his word so that all people can have access to the understanding power of his grace. That's why we support missionaries, because God called these men and women to be lights in the dark world that we as Americans often don't think about. We as Americans are often pretty jaded to the outside world. We care what's going on. We care about who our president is or who it isn't or who we're going to bomb next or who's going to bomb us. But the rest of the world we tend to forget. But God doesn't forget. God is calling missionaries to those places and God is calling you to help those missionaries. So the last one that I have, the last point that I have, it's my very favorite. It's roses are low maintenance. The rose doesn't have to do anything. You plant them, they grow. We have a small rose bush in our front yard, and every year we're like, all right. We're looking at the rose bush, and we're like, yep, this is, this is the year. This thing is dead. There's no way this thing is coming back. And sure enough, every year it blooms again. Even if it gets drowned in water, it still comes back. It's fantastic. Thankfully for that, because neither Emma or I have a green thumb. We can barely keep our kids alive, nevertheless a plant. Every year it blooms and blossoms, much like Christ relying on the grace of God and giving us access to that grace through his death. The only thing required of us is belief, super low maintenance. Believe that Christ's blood is sufficient to cover all of your shortcomings, all of your failures. I'm going to take a quick little detour and mention communion. We're going to have communion today when um, Jared gets up to sing again. When you're taking communion, the juice that you're drinking is a representation of Christ's blood. It's a representation of taking Christ's blood. The, uh, the bread is a representation of his body that was broken on the cross for you. The propitiation of God, all of the wrath, that's what communion is supposed to represent. So I want you to think about that while you're taking communion. God wants you to give access to all the cool stuff we mentioned before through that. So here is a reminder of those cool things. I'm going to break down all seven points really quick. One, roses are often sold by the dozen, representing the company that we keep. Two, red of the flower, representing the blood of Christ. Three, thorns reminding, of, thorns reminding us of his crown of thorns. Four, they grow in rough soil, reminding us to keep on when things get tough. Five, Blossoms when other flowers don't, reminding us to be different from the world. Six, transplant easily, symbolizing the free access to the word and the power contained therein. Seven, low maintenance, gives, access, gives all access to the power through his grace. So the next time you see a rose or buy one for your significant other, maybe take a second to remember Christ being that rose for us and sacrificing for us. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your redeeming grace and your power. Thank you for sending your son to give us access to all of this stuff, to being able to, to come to you, Lord, with everything that we have, with all of our hopes, all of our thoughts, all of our fears, all of our inconvenience, whatever it is, Lord. You give us access to that through your son and the power through your son. So I just pray, Lord, that your message will go out. It will be fed in hearts and minds in this day and that you can just be a, a glory, that you can be glorified in, in all things, Lord. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.